Jewish Education and Media is pleased to present L'Chaim, a program that highlights the people, issues, and events of importance to the Jewish community. Now here is your host, Rabbi Mark Golub. I'm Mark Golub. Welcome to what is an important edition of L'Chaim. We're taping this program in December 2020, but whenever we replay this program, the theme of this program remains profoundly relevant. In November 2020, Penguin Random House published an autobiography of former President Barack Obama entitled A Promised Land. In the first week alone, the book sold more than 1.7 million copies in hard copy, hard copy and online, making it the highest selling book in Random House history. Millions upon millions of Americans love Barack Obama and Americans have devoured a promised land. And there are many wonderful chapters in Mr. Obama's autobiography, which describes his life leading up to his becoming president of the United States, and then much of his time as president and the issues he had to confront. And the book also has a full chapter on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which should be highly troubling to any American who knows anything about the history of the conflict certainly troubling to any Jew who cares for the future well-being of the state of Israel. I want to ask you a question. What do the letters PLO stand for? If you said Palestine Liberation Organization, you are correct. The PLO was created to liberate the land of Palestine. Now answer this. The Six-Day War occurred in 1967, which of course brought the West Bank, the Golan Heights, the Gaza Strip, as well as the Sinai Desert into Israeli control. 1967 changed the map of Israel and the surrounding Arab nations. So, which year was the PLO created? People often think the PLO was created in response to the Six-Day War and was an effort to liberate lands Israel came into control of in 1967. So they'll answer, the PLO was created in 1967 or in the years following the Six-Day War. But in fact, the PLO was created by the Arab League in 1964, three years before the Six-Day War, which means that when the Arab League devoted the PLO to liberating Palestine, they meant the sovereign state of Israel. Now, this is basic, fundamental Middle East history. And if Barack Obama writes about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and either doesn't know that the PLO was created in 1964, three years before Israel ever set foot on the West Bank or in the old city of Jerusalem, 
or if he knew and knows when the PLO was created, but willfully distorts the story. What does this say about Mr. Obama's overall analysis of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? How seriously should his perspective be taken? And what other misconceptions is he promulgating about the conflict? Now, here's how Mr. Obama portrays the emergence of the PLO after the Six-Day War. He writes, Palestinians living within the occupied territories, mostly in refugee camps, found themselves governed by the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF, with their movements and economic activity severely restricted, prompting calls for armed resistance and resulting in the rise of the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO. For anyone unschooled in the history of Israel, which is the overwhelming American population and includes a vast majority of American Jews, the clear impression given is that the PLO is a post-67 creation devoted to the liberation of the, quote, occupied territories. And for those of you who do well know the history of Israel, listen to this sentence from A Promised Land. For the next three decades after Israel's creation, Israel would engage in a succession of conflicts with its Arab neighbors, most significantly, the Six-Day War of 1967, in which a greatly outnumbered Israeli military routed the combined armies of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. In the process, Israel seized control of the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan, the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, and the Golan Heights from Syria. So I ask those of you who know, did Israel engage in a succession of conflicts with its Arab neighbors? Or was Israel attacked in 1947, threatened economically in 1956, on the brink of possible annihilation by the combined Arab forces of Egypt, Syria, and Jordan in 1967? The word engage suggests Israel was at least complicit in the conflicts, if not responsible for them. And Israel didn't seize control of territories. Israel came in, into control in a defensive war of survival. And nowhere does Mr. Obama recount how Israel pleaded with the King of Jordan not to enter the war and promised not to step foot on the West Bank if Jordan remained at peace. It was only when Jordan began shelling Jerusalem that Israel took defensive action against Jordan. None of this is in Obama's book. This is not a Jewish narrative. This is simple, factual history. One more last passage for those of you who really know 
Israeli and Jewish history. Amazingly, Mr. Obama never mentions once the League of Nations and completely omits the fact that the League of Nations had a mandate system which they adopted in 1919, which gave international sanction to Great Britain's responsibility to create a Jewish Palestine. Instead, here's what Mr. Obama writes. As Britain withdrew at the end of the mandate, the two sides quickly fell into war. And with Jewish militias claiming victory in 1948, the state of Israel was officially born. The two sides quickly fell into war. The simple truth is that seven Arab nations attacked the state of Israel and Israel desperately defended itself. And Jewish militias didn't claim victory in 1948 and the war actually lasted until 1949. There was a ceasefire brokered by the United States. More importantly, the state of Israel was not officially born after the war of 48. Israel was officially born the day the British ended their administration of Palestine when David Ben-Gurion read the Declaration of Independence of the modern state of Israel. Israel was not born out of a war with the Arab nations. Israel was born in accordance with the international sanctions of the League of Nations affirmed in the partition plan of the United Nations in 1947. And it took President Truman only 11 minutes to formally recognize the official birth of the state of Israel on May 14, 1948. And only after the state of Israel was officially born did the Arab nations then seek to annihilate the infant Jewish state and promise to push every Jew into the Mediterranean Sea. None of this is described in Mr. Obama's chapter on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the reason the details matter is because the details shape the way people think and feel what they think they know. In this case, hundreds of thousands of ill-informed people will read Mr. Obama's book and will assume that his description of the underlying history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is accurate. And the impression Mr. Obama gives is that at best, both sides equally responsible. And at worst, that Israel is the bad guy in the story because Israel took Palestinian land seized the West Bank and has been a brutal occupying force ever since, only to be fought by those who consider themselves to be freedom fighters. And you should understand, every argument against Israel's right to exist is grounded in this underlying premise that Jews stole Arab-Palestinian land. 
Well, one man has written a brilliant, detailed critique of Mr. Obama's chapter on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He joins us now from his home in Bet Shemesh, Israel. It's a pleasure to welcome back to L'Chaim, Dov Lipman. Dov Lipman is a former Knesset member, the first American-born MK in 39 years. He's also a rabbi, and he holds a master's in education from Johns Hopkins University. And Dov Lipman is also the author of eight books about Judaism and Israel. And for the past few years, Dov has worked tirelessly to integrate the ultra-Orthodox into Israeli society. And Dov, it's wonderful to see you again. Thank you for making time for us on JBS. Thank you so much, uh, Mark. It's really a pleasure to be with you. And I'm happy that we can talk about this very important topic to all of your viewers. By the way, Dov, what prompted you to write your piece, refuting point by point the things Barack Obama wrote about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Why did you write your piece? It was about 11.15 at night. I was getting ready to go to sleep, what I thought would be an early night. And someone sent me a WhatsApp message saying, you have to see this. And they sent me a PDF format of the president's book. They said, go to page 689, which I did. And I started reading. And I have to be honest with you, Mark, I was in shock. You just laid out so beautifully uh, so many of the areas which are simply falsehoods or misleading statements. And I couldn't believe what I was reading. I've never been in an anti-Barack Obama camp. I'm a person who's expressed very clearly my appreciation for the relationship that Israel and America have had while he was president uh, as well, military cooperation and, and economic help as well. And all of a sudden, I see what can only be called a revisionist history about Israel, which I know from my travels to parliaments around the world and college campuses, that is the narrative which the anti-Israel camp tells. Mm -hmm. And now a president of the United States is telling that narrative. I started right then writing down all the issues which I saw that were false. And then the next day, I took the time, pretty much the whole day, to refute each one of them, to make it clear uh, where there are misleading statements, where it's false, and to hopefully educate people correctly about Israel along the way. By the way, you wrote it beautifully and brilliantly, as I said. And people can you know, Google online and find Dove's piece. Uh, you can read it in detail. Um, Dove, when someone like a Barack Obama suggests the PLO really came into fruition post-1967 Six-Day War, or never mentions the League of Nations and its mandate program. Do you think he really knows, but decides to withhold information from his reader? Or is it that he's ignorant of the history of Israel? And this is a very important question because it goes to not only Barack Obama, it goes to many members of Congress and prior presidents. And there are those who argue, it's not that they're anti-Israel or anti-Semitic, they don't know any better. 
So I'm asking you, do you think Obama, Barack Obama knows about the League of Nations? Does he know that the PLO was created to liberate the state of Israel before Israel even came control, came into control of the bank, uh, West Bank? Or is he ignorant of it all? And it's sad that he's ignorant, but his errors are a function of ignorance, not deception or misleading statements. I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, I want to hope that it's nothing malicious or willful or with intention. Uh, I do not believe that Barack Obama is anti-Semitic and is in it to get the Jews. And there's a lot of rhetoric out there. And I really wrote the piece to try to push out uh, all of that outside noise and just focus in on correcting the facts that are there. And I'll tell you, Mark, one of my goals, you know, I wrote it at first for a website called JNS.org, the New Jewish News Syndicate. Yes. And my hope was that it would be picked up yes. along the way. Yes. It really has. Yes, it, it really is. has spread with all kinds of figures, including Nikki Haley, the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, tweeting it out. And my goal is to somehow get to a point where maybe someone on President Obama's team or even former President Obama himself has to answer the questions, because this is not politics. This is not rhetoric. This is not an agenda, a, a political agenda of any kind. I do not get involved in internal American politics as an Israeli politician, but it's about facts and falsehoods. And therefore, I don't know uh, what the answer to your question is, but I do know that we have to keep this issue on the radar screen and being talked about until we do force some kind of an answer to come from somewhere within the Barack Obama camp. All right, again, you say it beautifully, but I'm gonna push you one more time because it has to be one or the other. And you've had experience as an MK in Israel, dealing with the American government, American officials, congressmen, senators. You are an, a, an American as well as an Israeli. So you have a sense of the American administrations and American government. Do you think Barack Obama could possibly not know of the League of Nations and that Britain was given a mandate, meaning a responsibility to create a Jewish Palestine, which we named, which Ben-Gurion named Israel. It could have been named Judea. It could have been named who knows what. But it was supposed to be a Jewish country in the land of Palestine. And at the same time, you know, most people, they don't know that Syria and Iraq and Lebanon, none of these countries existed prior to the League of Nations. Jordan comes much later. The League of Nations had a, the League of Nations, the world body after World War I, the precursor of the United Nations, believed that indigenous peoples should be given the chance to have their own polity, their own sovereignty. But they took developed nations like Great Britain, like France, and they said to them, we're giving you a responsibility. France, your job is to create a Syria and a Lebanon. And by the way, Great Britain, we want you to create a Jewish entity in the land of Palestine. Is it 
possible that Barack Obama does not mention that in his book because he doesn't know. I'm going to answer your question by jumping to one more example that I write about in my article, and that is related to the Temple Mount. Please. Because I don't want to get into the whole story that he was referring to. He was talking about Ariel Sharon, uh, the opposition leader at the time, visiting the Temple Mount, and which he basically suggests led to the Second Intifada. Let's put that aside for a moment. But when he identifies the Temple Mount, he writes one of the holiest sites in Islam and does not at the same time mention that it's the holiest site in Judaism. I don't believe for a second that Barack Obama does not recognize and know that the Temple Mount is the holiest site in Judaism, and yet he omits that. And I'm thinking to myself, if there's a reader out there who doesn't know anything about the history of this land of Jerusalem and the geography of the Temple Mount, and they read that Ariel Sharon visited the Temple Mount, one of the holiest sites in Islam, with no reference to Judaism, they would say he did something wrong. Yet had he added in that one phrase and the holiest site in Judaism, then the reader might say, so why can't he visit it? So just by that one omission of something he has to know about, he knows about that fact for sure, uh, there's a real misleading nature to that paragraph and to everything that happened in that episode. So because of that example, I, I, need, I have to say that someone who is smart and, and, and understands the world uh, on that, on history on some level, certainly as the president of the United States, has to know more than just simple mistakes uh, that are made in, in the book. Uh, and that makes me very uncomfortable as well. And, and Mark, I wanna emphasize, this message that we're talking about right now, it, it needs to be something which has nothing to do with Republican or Democrat. Exactly it has nothing to right. do with conservative exactly or liberal. Right. right. It has to be our demand that we stick to the facts when we talk about complex situations like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and not buy in to the rhetoric of a false rhetoric of extremists on any side uh, of the issue. And sadly, just from the example that I gave, and some of the examples that you've given, it does seem like Barack Obama has fallen into the category of following that falsehood and misleading rhetoric of the extremist sides. Yes, and neither one of us have ever sat with him. We're not psychoanalysts, we're not psychiatrists, so it would be somewhat inappropriate to try to figure out why. Exactly. But I think you're right. It, is inconceivable to me that he doesn't know. And for me, Dove, that bothers me more because now I'm dealing with somebody who is trying to shape a narrative that is literally, literally false. And you know, you and I understand it, and many of the viewers of JBS understand it, but it's not the viewers who understand it that I'm worried about. I'm worried about all those, even those who are watching JBS right now, who don't know. Right. And not only that, they are swayed by something like this. They're swayed by what they read in the New York Times. They're swayed by the way 
as CNN uh, will describe an action taken by Israel in Gaza. And they're good people. These are good, lovely, loving Jews. And they're not anti-Israel. They want Israel to be the best it can possibly be. And they're convinced that Israel bears not only some guilt, Dove, but the majority of the guilt. And, you know, at one time you, when you and I, well, I, I'm older than you are, so I don't know exactly whether this applies to you. I grow up, Israel is the David and the Arab world is the Goliath. And one of the references Obama makes is to the Arab-Israeli conflict. At one point in a brilliant stroke of PR, it went from Arab-Israeli, where, where Israel was the David to the Arab Goliath to Israeli-Palestinian, where now Israel is seen as the Goliath and the Palestinians are suddenly the David. But well-meaning Jews have bought into this, not because they're anti-Israel, Dove, but this is Barack Obama and other similar authorities. And what really scares the heck out of me is that this book represents something larger. It's not this, when it's all said and done, this bothers both of us because it's the president of the United, a former president of the United States who also happens to be beloved by 70% of the American Jewish community. And he's beloved by the entire liberal leaning American community and the progressive American community. So when they read Barack Obama saying it, it seems to justify their anti-Israel feelings, but it goes beyond. Barack Obama's book is just an example. The reason I said, Dove, that to me this is a very important edition of L'Chaim, no matter when I air it, is that the problem is a larger problem than one book. It's a problem of a mentality. And I want you to speak about this from your own perspective. I have traveled, as I mentioned before, to campuses and I've seen Jewish children who grew up in Zionist homes where they received a Jewish education from all streams and all backgrounds. And Israel for them was always this rah-rah, wear blue and white, uh, and, uh, march in a parade, that's what Israel was. And all of a sudden they go to a college campus and they're told, wait a minute, you have Israel over here and human rights and justice over here. And you gotta choose and you're a university age student, you're gonna to go to human rights and justice and just buy into this narrative yes. that Israel is the aggressor, that Israel is the colonizer, that Israel is the occupier. And we're fighting hard enough on those campuses to try to tell the truth and get the education to these students. But as you just said it, the moment a Barack Obama gives the stamp of approval to that terminology, to that rhetoric, to that perspective, 
our our ability to overcome that becomes so much harder and i can almost hear the sound of of the young people being pulled to the anti-israel side because of this book you, you in the introduction you mentioned some of the references he actually says that when the arab side rejected the un partition plan in 1947 and the jewish side accepted it by the way he goes out of his way to say the Zionist leaders uh, accepted it. That's a whole other discussion of a deliberate word, which in my opinion, which has unfortunately a negative connotation in today's world. But he says the Arab nations who have been, I don't remember the exact terminology and I wanna be someone who's accurate, but he basically says who had been dealing with colonial rule for so long, they rejected the partition plan. I want to show our audience the passage you are referring to. Here's the passage from Barack Obama's book. In 1947, in the wake of World War II, and in the shadow of the Holocaust's unspeakable crimes, the United Nations approved a partition plan to establish two sovereign states, one Jewish, the other Arab, with Jerusalem, a city considered holy by Muslims, Christians, and Jews alike, to be governed by an international body. Then, Dove, as you said, he writes, Zionist leaders embrace the plan, but Arab Palestinians, as well as surrounding Arab nations that were also just emerging from colonial rule, strenuously objected. So now, what is the what is the implication? of that phrase, who were just emerging from colonial rule, it's a, an attempt to do two things. One is to justify their rejection of the plan and why they've already experienced colonial rule. They don't want any more of that. What is the implication that Jews creating a Jewish state in Palestine, in the land of Israel, is an act of colonialism. It's it's colonial act, and he's making that association, and that is that is completely accepting the rhetoric of the not just the anti-Israel movements, but even the BDS movement, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. That's the terminology that they use. That Israel is the occupier. That Israel has no place here. That Israel is colonial rule coming into play in Israel, and and that is something which is just taking the minds, especially of young people who don't know any better, and it's leading them to take uh, root in the anti-Israel camp. And that is unfair, it's unjust, and it's something which has to be called out. And I wanna tell you the truth, Mark. I would like nothing more than if after all of this, and it's a dream, if I could engage in a, a respectful, and dignified, intellectually honest conversation with Barack Obama, who I would think would want the world to feel that he's someone who is telling the truth, that would be a goal here because that chapter is so filled from beginning to end with falsehoods and misleading statements that I feel that it has to be addressed uh, or else there's, a, there's an injustice that's being done. I think you're absolutely right. As I said just a few moments ago, this is not a unique exposition by Barack Obama. This, as you say, reflects a general 
narrative that is being sold to Jews and non-Jews and especially to kids on the college campus. Um, I, I want you to take a moment. Why does the word Zionist in the passage bother you? It bothers me because they were establishing a Jewish state alongside an Arab state. That is the message of the UN partition plan. That is the concept that they were trying to draw up. In today's world, I think it's a shame and it's something which has to be changed. But the word Zionist today has, has been uh, misused and misrepresented as the conquering oppressor. That's why in the UN in the 1970s, the whole Zionism is racism. What is Zionism? Zionism is the right of the Jewish people to live in their uh, indigenous, ancestral, historical, I'll add biblical homeland. That is what Zionism is. Uh, it's nothing other than that. It's not how we go about it. It's not hurting anyone else in the process. In fact, I would argue it's almost the opposite because the ideal Jewish state that we build in this land is a Jewish state that has beautiful values of equality and of embracing other people, of no racism, of no discrimination. It's, it should be the exact opposite of how it's been portrayed. But all of a sudden, while talking about a Jewish state, he slips in the word Zionist leaders. Why? Why all of a sudden introduce that word? You haven't explained what Zionism is, so how can you suddenly use that word? But I know that it's a word that is taken by the anti-Israel camp. It's a word that's used in a negative way. It's pejorative. It has a connotation of that oppressor, oppressing conqueror. And all of a sudden, then he uses that word. I, I feel like on the one hand, he, was, he couldn't just say the Jews accepted it because they were happy to live in the land of Israel alongside the Arabs. That, that couldn't be the message. So it's the Zionist leaders embrace it. And then he gives the justification for the poor oppressed Arab nations who have been suffering from colonial rule, why they felt that they had to reject this. You know, something else Mr. Obama says in his book and uh, his chapter, I should say, uh, he discusses the creation of Israel almost as if it began with the Balfour Declaration. And the Balfour Declaration of 1914 was very important. It was a statement by a British official that Great Britain looked favorably on the notion of creating a Jewish homeland in the land of Palestine. It was not in any way an internationally legal document. And yet, Mr. Obama makes it sound as if the Balfour Declaration is when any kind of conflict between Arab and Jew began. But he does write this. He says that at the time that Israel, that the Jews, began to come in waves to Israel, and he and Dove, he acts like they weren't there prior to 1914. He, he doesn't talk about the early first wave of Zionism. He doesn't talk about the Kishnev pogroms of 1903 and four. And he doesn't describe the tens of thousands of Jews who came to Israel in the years prior to the 
Balfour Declaration. But instead, what he does say, and he's right, he does say, the land at the time was overwhelmingly populated by Arabs. And this comes to the heart of the anti-Israel issue. And I know it's, it's almost impossible to answer, but I wanna hear your answer. I wanna know how you would answer the underlying argument against the legitimacy of the state of Israel, which is that Jews stole the land from the Palestinians. And this is something you and I have heard not only from outside the Jewish community, we've heard this from Jews. And I wanna read one other passage to you from another book, which by the way, ironically, sounds like it has the same title. It was called My Promised Land. And it was written by Ari Shavit, a very well-known Israeli journalist. And by the way, I should set, it, set this up for our audience. A great-grandfather of Ari Shavit is sent by Herzl to scout out the land of Palestine to see if indeed it would be suitable for a Jewish homeland, Jewish state, which is what Herzl wrote about in the state. So his name was Bentwich. So Bentwich goes with a group of other Englishmen on a voyage to Palestine. And this is the way, and, and Bentwich is overwhelmingly impressed and becomes very enthusiastic about a future for the Jewish people in this land. And this is what Ari Shavit writes. There are more than a half million Arabs, Bedouins, and Druze in Palestine in 1897. There are 20 cities and towns and hundreds of villages. So how can the pedantic Bentwich not notice them? That there is another people now occupying the land of his ancestors. My great grandfather does not see because he's motivated by the need not to see. And then this is the single most upsetting sentence to me of the book. He does not see, because if he does see, he'll have to turn back. As far as Ari Shavit is concerned, Bentwich should have turned back if he had seen honestly. And this dove is the mantra. The mantra is, the land belonged to somebody else and the Jews came and took it. And you know what? We know there was anti-Semitism. And we even know that 2000 years earlier, the Jews had sovereignty in this land, but it was 2000 years ago. And since then many peoples have controlled the land. And basically, the Islamic community has had the longest running sovereignty of the land in modern times. So, you know, I appreciate that Jews have a historic claim, but there are people who have a claim that is more imminent, more, more immediate. 
And I know there was a Holocaust, we're told. And it was horrible, horrific. But why should the Arabs of Palestine bear the burden of somehow recompensing Jews for the ugliness, horror, and murder of the Holocaust? So they're not denying either Jewish ancestry and a tie to the land or the importance of the Holocaust, which as Obama says, moved the world toward that partition plan of 1947. But the ultimate, ultimately, the underlying premise of the anti-Israel argument is no more complicated than this. The Jews took somebody else's land. The Jews stole Palestinian land. And unless that is somehow addressed, one is at a disadvantage in the discussion with those who are convinced the Arabs are the poor underdogs and Israel is the brutalizing occupying force. So Dove Lippman, I wanna hear how you would respond to anyone who would say to you, hey Dove, the problem is, as much as I love Israel, I love Jews, I love there to be in Israel, I'm not necessarily saying that Israel should go out of existence, but the truth is Israel was established illegitimately because it was on the backs of the Arabs and the Jews stole the land. And you would say. My first sentence is going to be pretty harsh, but then I'll explain it. I would say that that to me is outright anti-Semitism. And let me explain why. Why do I, as a Jew, not have a right to move to the land of Palestine and live here? Does this land have to be Juden, Ryan? Because there were Arabs who were Muslim who were living here before? Were they establishing a state of their own, which I have taken away from by coming here? No, there was no national movement of the Arabs who were living here to establish a state. There were people who were living here in one form or another, and there was not one Jew who wanted to come here and move them out of those places. The partition plan in 1947, and people have to know this, the Jewish state was going to be approximately 45% Arab. The Arab state, based on the boundaries, was going to be 1% Jewish. We were accepting of a Jewish state, which was going to be 45% Arab. We're not asking anybody to leave their homes. Not only that, in our Declaration of Independence, it makes a specific statement that we have to strive for equality for all of those citizens. There is no reason why I, as a Jew, can't live here. But somehow, we've accepted the premise that there are places in the world where Jews can't go, places in the world where Christians can't go. By the way, there's a place in Israel today where a Jew and Christian can't pray, and that's on the Temple Mount where the Muslims have their mosque and their shrine. That's right. But you know what just happened a few days ago? A few days ago, Muslims for the United Arab Emirates came to the Western Wall, the Kotel, and they prayed there. And no one said one word to them about what they can or can't do. We as Jews are willing to live together and side by side with people of other faiths. And the statement that I as a Jew living in Israel, in the land of or Palestine, 
is somehow infringing on the rights of the Arabs who are living here, I'm sorry, that to me is anti-Semitic. Why can't I live here? If the doctrine of the Jews was we're coming here and we're pushing the Arabs out, they cannot be here anymore, then there would be some legitimacy to the rhetoric and the narrative that you're saying. And by the way, there were episodes in Israel's history where Jews did take steps that they should not have taken, in my opinion. And that's where legitimate criticism comes into play. You can criticize actions that either groups of soldiers or individual soldiers took, or maybe a commander took here and there in war. Horrible things happen. And we have to take responsibility for the mistakes that we make. And those are legitimate criticisms. Mm -hmm. But I can tell you this, not one shot had to be fired and not one Arab had to leave their home if the Arabs would have accepted the partition plan in 1947. Uh, President Obama talks about how there were well-trained Jewish armed militias. I forgot the exact terminology. Yes, you got it. They were refugees running away from persecution, yes. handed guns because we had no choice because we had to defend ourselves from the attacking Arabs who would not accept the presence of the Jews in this land. And that to me is anti-Semitism. And therefore I label those who attack us as occupying someone else's land. I view that as discriminatory. I view that as racist. And in our world today, no one should accept that. Jews have a right to live wherever they want to live in the world alongside the other people who are living there. And that is my answer to that question. That is a brilliant answer. And by the way, Deva, I've never heard anybody say it the way you just said it. And I hope our audience appreciates that. Incidentally, this is a, again, a detail. It is, in some way, it's a small detail. But I want you to tell our audience the word Palestinian, as it applies to people who live in Eretz Yisrael in the early part of the 20th century, who was designated historically at the beginning of the 20th century as Palestinians? Every single person who was living in this land and documented, they were Palestinians. The Jews that were living here were Palestinians. The Jerusalem Post was called the Palestine Post. If you look at the coins that Jews used here, uh, they had names of Jewish cities and they were in Palestine. By the way, if you go back historically and see when Palestine started to become used, it had nothing to do with Muslims because there weren't any Muslims who were in the world at the time. Islam was created well after the term Palestine was being used. The Romans took that terminology and started calling Judea Palestine to try to remove any reference of Jews having lived in this land. And Palestine actually might go back, the word, there's a lot of discussion about it, it might even go back to a word in the Bible where it talks about the Plishtim, the Philistines, who were outsiders who came in to live on the coastal area uh, where actually the Gaza Strip currently is. It has nothing to do with a Muslim nation. It has nothing to do with Arabs. It's a terminology that was used in this land from the moment we were exiled from this land. And that's why everyone here was called Palestinian. And by the way, going back to the foundation of the state, the Arabs that were living here didn't call themselves 
Palestinians. Right. That terminology was not there. Rev never. And there was never, again, I want to be understood. I want to be sure I'm not misunderstood. I understand there now is a Palestinian community. Agreed. A Palestinian movement and a Palestinian community. And I don't denigrate that. But it didn't exist in the early part of the 20th century. And it didn't exist in 1947 and 48. And I'll remind our audience, and some of you watching, you may be, no, I don't think you're old enough. Your parents may be old enough. I think there was a World's Fair in Flushing and there was a Palestinian pavilion. The Palestinian pavilion was Jewish. Wow, I did not know that. The Jews, a Jews of Palestine were the Palestinians and then there were the Arabs of Palestine. And again, this doesn't mean, you know, at one point, there's the argument, well, there never was a Palestinian people, therefore they don't matter. That's not true. But it is important for history because the, the Arabs living in the land of Eretz Yisrael, Palestine, at the turn of the century, in the 20s and in the 30s, they were, many of them were not indigenous to the land. They came from other Arab countries to work and help build Jews who were building kibbutzim and some of the early cities of the state of Israel to drain swamps. So the, the, they were not native to Palestine. They came from Egypt. Many of them had Egyptian names. Some of them came from what became Jordan. And they did not have a collective Palestinian identity they identified with their Arab brothers and sisters. They saw themselves as part of the larger Arab world, which was represented by the Arab League. Which brings me to ask you to speak to another fact. And although Obama makes reference to it, unless you know what he's talking about, it's not nearly clear enough. What was Khartoum, Dov, and why is it significant? So you mentioned before that Obama describes the Six-Day War. He doesn't make reference, as you said, to the fact that Israel was de defending itself from an incoming, uh, a soon-to-be all-out assault to destroy the state of Israel. And during that war, which they actually asked, certainly in Jordan's case, not to fight, Israel took control of many areas that had been Arab controlled beforehand. And immediately after the war, Israel made it clear that it was prepared to leave those areas. We're talking about the West Bank, the Golan Heights. We're talking about uh, East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, the Sinai in return for peace. Because Mark, that's all we want. We don't want our children to be at war. We don't want them in the army. We don't want them to have guns. We don't want any of this. And therefore take the land back and let's just have peace. And the Arab League got together in Khartoum and they discussed this issue and they came out with a declaration called the three no's. What are the three no's? No negotiations with Israel, no recognition of Israel, and no 
peace with Israel. They closed the door on Israel's quiet offer to settle this right there. And Israel at that point had no settlements. There were no Jews living in the West Bank. There were no Jews living in the Gaza Strip. And they made that offer. And the Arab League makes this response. What a critical piece of information, not to reference in some kind of a hidden manner, but to outright tell people as they're trying to understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And the fact that that's not part of the story, the fact that that's not highlighted does a disservice to Israel and again plays into the image of Israel having seized those territories and they're not willing to relinquish one inch of it. And that's just not true. So I want to hear from you. What do you consider to be some of the other most egregious errors of omission or omissions in Barack Obama's chapter on Israel? I, I because they're more modern issues, I'm shifting towards uh, the issues that are on the table today. There's no doubt the Temple Mount to me uh, is, is just a, a, a unconscionable not to mention that it's the holiest site in Judaism, so people can have a context at least. But then I'll go to Gaza, because President Obama starts discussing the issues that we've had with Gaza, which certainly issues while he was president uh, that came up. There were a few cycles of war with Gaza while he was president of the United States. The first thing I'm gonna highlight is a, an omission. And then the second one is going to be what I view as a, a phrase, which I still can't believe he wrote. Okay. The omission is, how can you write about Israel's conflict with Gaza without highlighting that in 2005, Israel acted and removed every single soldier and forcibly removed Jews from their homes to leave the Gaza Strip completely and leave it to the Palestinians, the disengagement as it's called. We can argue about uh, should Israel have the Gaza today or not, and why, we can discuss that. But one thing is for sure, Israel is no longer occupying the Gaza Strip, and no reference of that leaves the reader to assume, oh, the Jews are still there, the Israelis are still there, the IDF is still there. I understand why there's conflict, I understand why they're shooting missiles, get the heck out of their land. We're not there. We're not there. They could have built a beautiful, uh, luxurious country and state in that area. We left our greenhouses for them as well. And that's omitted. And that's critical for anyone who's seeing what's happening in Israel today and our conflict with Hamas in Gaza. You have to know about the disengagement. But that takes me to the next one. He does talk about the fact that Hamas fires rockets into Israel. Uh, I always tell my the students when I speak on college campuses, just imagine for a moment, for one moment, what America would do, no matter who the president is, if we were in a conflict with Mexico, let's say, and Mexico lobbed one missile into, I don't know, San Antonio. Uh, I know, as a former American, what the United States Air Force would do the very next day to the area where that missile was launched. Mm -hmm. What does Obama write? Obama writes, they shoot missiles into Israel, and then Israel levels entire neighborhoods. Yes, he actually, he actually refers to Apache helicopters. And you make that point in your piece. And explain why it is why you thought it was significant that he had to add, they leveled, they leveled 
Palestinian land, uh, parts of the Gaza Strip, but they leveled it with Apache helicopters. He specifically says Apache helicopters that come from the U.S. And there's no doubt in my mind that he's leading someone to the question, why is America providing any kind of military support for Israel if this is how they're abusing the made-in-the-USA ammunitions? There's no doubt in my mind. There was no reason to say that otherwise. And he says it in the context of a falsehood that Israel levels neighborhoods. I want to be clear. War is horrible. And in war, sadly, innocent people are killed. And that's a horrible thing. And that's one of the reasons why we need to find a way to have peace in this region. But I've also sat with the Israeli Air Force pilot who called off one of his missions 27 times because there were too many civilians in the area. And what was his mission? To destroy a rocket launcher that was shooting missiles into Israeli cities aimed at Israeli civilians. We don't go in and aimlessly level neighborhoods. Sadly, Hamas uses the people in Gaza as human shields. They fire rockets from mosques, from hospitals, from schoolyards, and then Israel has the impossible task of trying to destroy those rocket launchers without hurting civilians. But I can tell you that image is Hamas fires missiles into Israel, and then Israel takes revenge and destroys Gazan neighborhoods. It's just false. Yes, innocent civilians have been killed. That's what happens, sadly, in wartime. But Israel is known to have a coat of arms. We go out of our way to try to avoid killing any innocent civilians. And again, that's a false statement linked to the U.S. Apache helicopters to then generate American feelings of why are we even helping Israel if they carry out these atrocities using the helicopters that we are somehow involved in. And those are current events, Mark, because we're going to have another cycle, sadly, with Gaza at some point when Hamas starts firing missiles for whatever reason into Israel. Mm -hmm. And then people are going to think that Israel's response is just as bad as the Hamas attack and that's an equating two sides in, in a way which I believe is just unjust and outright false. Mm -hmm. Again, beautifully, beautifully said. Dove, did you serve in the IDF? Sadly, I moved to Israel at the age of 32, and the army rejected me. Can you believe that? No. They said, you're married with four children over 30. Uh, so I was rejected. I did volunteer in the Border Patrol and was involved in certain activities through that. And my wife and I are the prayer parents of a son who became a commander in an elite combat unit. Okay. You had a child who, look, the reality is your child's life was at risk. I assume he has finished his IDF service? He now only does his reserve duty on an right. annual basis. Okay. Correct. But he was in for three years or whatever. And if he was in an elite unit, he, he was in danger, certainly some of the time. And you as a parent, you and your wife, and I'm sorry, what's your wife's name? Dina. So you and Dina lived with that. Uh, well, I don't know how Israeli parents do it because when their children are serving on the West Bank or on the Gaza border or on the Lebanese border, you never know what's going to happen to them. You never know when there's going to be another 
Shalit situation. What was that like for you? I will tell you that uh, the word prayer didn't mean anything to me until I had a child in the IDF because it was a daily connection with God where I was saying, please keep him safe. And I actually felt guilty afterwards that I wasn't praying that way beforehand for everyone's children who are out there because why should it just be about my child? There are nights when it's difficult to go to sleep when you're told we're giving in our cell phones, I'll be in touch when I'm in touch. And you don't know exactly what that means. Um, and it's very, very challenging. There's also a pride though that goes along with it. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, my grandmother, uh, who just passed away a little bit earlier last this past year, uh, she's a Holocaust survivor who survived Auschwitz-Birkenau. And she lived to see a great grandson who was a commander in the Israel Defense Forces. What was her name? Ethel Kleinman. All right, Ethel. She's, yeah. And she survived Auschwitz-Birkenau. She survived Auschwitz-Birkenau. She had a great grandson who, as a commander, and we have a picture of my son together with her in his uniform. And the look on her face of pride that we are now in a position to defend ourselves and we are strong and we are not chased and persecuted any longer. So you had that pride. There was a pride involved as well. But I will tell you that you know, I, I go to campuses and they're screaming at me, peace, peace, peace. I looked at them and I said, there is no one in this room who wants peace more than I do. Because right now my son is out there with a gun and we don't want him out there. He doesn't want to have to be out there, but we're only out there because we have to defend ourselves and no one wants peace more than I do. And that's another element that you learn during that experience is you realize how horrific conflict is and war is and why Israel has shown over the decades a strong willingness to make great sacrifices for peace, not sacrifices that will hurt our security, not sacrifices that mean that we're basically committing national suicide, but sacrifices which we can live with for the sake of peace agreements. And uh, that's who we are as a people. And I want to be very clear, Mark, I think that if you read Obama's chapter 25, you do not get that impression. Absolutely. You do not get a real sense about who the people of Israel are and how much they do not want to be involved in armed conflict. Yes, and I have never spoken to any Israeli, left or far right, who doesn't hope that his children are the last generation to have to face the kind of conflict which puts lives at risk. And for that, what they want, just as you do, more than anything, is peace so that their grandchildren will not have to do what they did or what their children did. And duh, for the life of me, I don't understand why American Jews don't get it. it it's bad enough for me that Americans don't get it. But this is mishpacha, this is family for us. Our family has to put their kids in harm's way and they don't want to and they would do anything for what you referred to as a secure peace and again very often 
people act as if well, Israel should give up anything for peace. And what Obama says in his book, comment on this for me, is that he describes his Middle East policy once he becomes president. And what he says is, yes, I did pressure Israel more than the Palestinians because they're stronger. And I felt the stronger side should bear the responsibility of making greater concessions. Speak to that for a minute. I don't understand why, when or where stronger has to become equated with bad or worse, or uh, I don't understand that. Uh, yes, Israel is strong and Israel is stronger, but why would you want to do anything that could then hurt Israel's security? Uh, all That's all Israel is asking for. The reason why we're strong and the reason why we've worked on building up our army is because we have no choice because we've been fighting for our lives for 72 years. That's why that it's out of necessity, not out of want. And I, I you know, I often wonder when people tell me, just pull out of the West Bank and you'll have peace. My first question that I ask them is, have you ever seen the topography of the region? Do you know what you're talking about? And the answer of course is no. And then when I point out to them that the West Bank is the high ground that overlooks the entire rest of Israel. So let me ask you a question. You're asking me to vacate the high ground you're asking me to leave the eastern border because we can't have the Jordan Valley. You're opening up Israel to everything that's happening east of Israel, where we've had ISIS and all kinds of other fanatic activity. They're not going to flood into the high ground or Hamas itself will just take over the West Bank. And now all of a sudden we've ceded the high ground to enemies who still have as part of their doctrine, the destruction of Israel because we're stronger you're going to pressure us into a situation where our security is at a complete risk and we're at risk of complete and total annihilation. I don't understand that. That's why I'm saying the terminologies that are being used, which just don't add up because you have to finish the rest of the sentence because they're stronger. Therefore, what? Therefore, they don't have a right to secure themselves. They don't have a right to protect their citizens. And that's the part uh, that I don't get. And I want to be honest with you as well. Sometimes those policies are actually detrimental to the Palestinians themselves. And people are not really thinking about what's always best for the Palestinians. And just one example of that is, you know, the idea of boycotting uh, uh, any products that come from the West Bank. Right. The factories in the West Bank, who's being employed in those factories? Largely Palestinians, these are their jobs. And when you close down that factory, just because that makes you feel good because you think you're doing something for human rights and you don't even realize how you're hurting someone, a Palestinian on the ground. There's so much rhetoric. There's so many big words that are used, uh, grandiose terms. Oh, the stronger one and then boycott. And, and then when you really understand what's happening on the ground, it's not relevant at that point and you're completely disconnected from it. And that's why I call on everyone who wants to learn about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, come to Israel, see it for yourself, see everything. You might walk away with criticism of Israel for certain policies. Mark, that's fair. You could criticize Israel. I'm not claiming ever that Israel's infallible. Israel has a democratically elected government, which I can disagree with. It could be people that I didn't vote for, and it's fair to criticize. 
But there's a line that you cross from legitimate criticism to outright anti-Israel bias built on falsehoods. And that's what we have to be fighting against. And that's what we're fighting against in terms of this chapter in President Obama's book. Oh, so beautifully said. Footnote. I, I hope people heard you. You know, on JBS, we've begun calling the West Bank the West Ridge because people don't understand, as you just mentioned, the topography. It isn't just a bank is what you have by the side of a sea. It's flat, it's sandy, it's no big deal. But the West Ridge is a mountain range. And as you say, it is the high ground. And so we've used the term often West Ridge instead of West Bank. And then people write me and say, why are you using the term? But you explained it, you explained it so well. And it's important of that people have a sense of the land and the fact that the West Bank, in fact, as you say, overlooks, by the way, it overlooks what percentage of the Israeli population? <laughs> if we, I mean, really, if you look at the map and, and even come and see it, uh, it is the overwhelming percentage of majority of where the Israelis live at the center of Israel. Israel has the Negev, the southern area, the periphery. We have the far north, the Galilee. But most of Israel lives between what we call Gadera and Chadera, uh, which is the center of Israel. And from the high ground of the West Bank, you have complete access with missile fire without a problem to all of those cities. And Israel can't, can't at this point simply relinquish those areas because that will mean uh, Israel essentially committing national suicide because we know what will happen, especially on the heels of our experience in Gaza of leaving Gaza, which is not the high ground, but leaving that area, that small area and Hamas taking it over. And now it's an outright launching pad for thousands and thousands of missiles into Israeli cities. And that's why we can't take that action. But you have to know that. You have to know the facts and the figures of the geography, the topography, to be able to make a real educated decision and, and form an opinion about what's happening here. It reminds me of the question I asked you toward the beginning of, the, of our discussion, which is, do you think those who are in the American ministry, in the State Department, or in the White House, or who are leaders of Congress, do they know what you've just said? And, you know, they're all, they've all visited Israel, but Dove, I really believe that they, that part of the problem is that so many American leaders who are in a position to really create policy have this notion, this unbelievably simplistic David Goliath notion of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as opposed to understanding how very complicated and sophisticated and subtle it is and how Israel has bent over backwards, hoping to find peace. And it's only when Oslo not only fell apart, but Oslo morphed into intifadas where Israeli children are being blown up in discotheques and pizza shops and Passover halls and 
you know, Israel has always lived with a certain degree of terror. Malot happens before the Intifada. But the kind of death that was inflicted or physical maiming of Israeli kids, let alone adults, if you blow up a bus, the carnage is strewn all over the street. None of that seems to be factored into the equation by people who are forming American foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis Israel, including Barack Obama. And do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I will say that President Obama references, talks about the second intifada uh, in the book. I do not believe that he describes it as well as it should be described so people can understand uh, what Israel was going through. But here's the amazing thing. He actually links it to that visit I mentioned before of Ariel Sharon to the Temple Mount. Yeah, talk, How can anyone- Talk about that, is, talk about that incident because you sure. write about it beautifully. Go ahead. So just to talk, the history is important. Uh, in 2000, President Clinton brings the Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak together with the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat to Camp David, and they have negotiations. And to make a long story short, Clinton gets Ehud Barak to basically give the Palestinians about 96% of what they're asking for. When does that happen in a negotiation? 96% of what they were asking for. And Yasser Arafat said no. And then a few months later, the Second Intifada, which you just described so powerfully, begins. This is not just some little armed conflict. This is pizza parlors blowing up, buses blowing up, women and children exploding. And even those who survived have shrapnel in their bodies. They're maimed. They have, they have missing limbs. This is what we're talking about. And Obama tells the story at great length about Ariel Sharon, the Israeli opposition leader at the time, visiting the Temple Mount. And as I mentioned before, he says the Temple Mount, which is an Islamic holy site, does not mention that it's a Jewish holy site and the holiest site in Jewish history and tradition. And that, he says, it's, was insightful. And uh, I think he says provocative might have been the terminology. And the Intifada begins. Are you trying to tell me that there is any possible justification or, or within the realm of, of justifying a visit of any human being in the world to any site in the world, to then having people blowing up buses and pizza parlors uh, and, and, and discotheques and Passover seders. How are those even mentioned in the same sentence? It's beyond me that anyone can link those two together. And I actually mentioned in my article, Palestinian leaders who outright said that after Camp David, when Arafat did not get 100% of what he was asking for, he told his people to start planning the second intifada. That's not Dove Lipman saying it. That's not Mark Gollum saying it. That's Palestinian leaders who I quote in the article who said it. And yet President Obama is talking about it as if, yeah, Ariel Sharon visited the site and it was insightful, it was provocative, and now we have five years of conflict between the two sides. It's shocking to read a history told in that manner. 
and Israel did not want to engage in conflict at that time either. But what choice do we have when Palestinian terrorists are coming into our cities and killing people and maiming people? We have to go into the Palestinian areas and deal with that and either arrest or kill those terrorists, but we don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. Uh, you know, if I can mention, uh, because we're in the weeks of this Torah portion, uh, one of the Torah portions is Vayishlach, where Jacob is returning back to the land of Israel and his twin brother Esau is coming to greet him. And the Torah records that as Esau was greeting him, he says that he was Vayira Yaakov, he was afraid, Vayetzerlo, and he was troubled. What's, he was afraid and troubled. That Jacob, Jacob was afraid and troubled about the meeting he was supposed to have, was going to have with Esau. Correct, because Esau was coming with 400 armed men, and he's worried and he's troubled. The great medieval commentator Rashi says, what are those two terminologies? Vayira, he was afraid. He was afraid of being killed. Vayetzerlo, he was troubled because he was afraid that he was going to have to kill someone else exactly. in his conflict exactly. with Esau. A that is Russia. who we are. Yes. We only go into the Palestinian areas if we have to because there are terrorists there. We don't want to hurt anybody else. But again, you read the book and you read about the Second Intifada, as you just referenced, and yeah, they're killing Jews in Israel. Israel's going and killing Palestinians, and it's just comparing them together and putting them all in one big narrative with a strong slant towards Israel being the aggressor, Israel being the cause of it, and it's just total 180 degrees from what the truth really is. One last issue I want you to address, because the other thing that Obama talks about in his chapter is APEC. And this is what he writes about APEC. In the past, the organization, APEC, had accommodated a spectrum of views on Middle East peace, insisting mainly that those seeking its endorsement support a continuation of US aid to Israel and oppose efforts to isolate or condemn Israel by the UN and other international bodies. But as Israeli politics had moved to the right, so had APEC's policy positions. Its staff and leaders increasingly argued that there should be no daylight between the US and Israeli governments, even when Israel took actions that were contrary to US policy. Those who criticized Israeli policy too loudly risked being tagged as anti-Israel and possibly anti-Semitic and confronted with a well-funded opponent in the next election. Just react, Dove, to that. Sentence. First thing I have to say is that I'll allow the people of APAC uh, to respond um, with more information on that. But my first reaction is this is a, 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 a smear with a broad brush of people who I know come from different parts of the political spectrum that make up APAC. Yes, it's true. APAC stands for a strong Israel. APAC is there for Israel's security. And APAC can understand that certain policies will infringe on Israel's security, and they will work very hard to make sure that doesn't happen. But in no way, from my experience, and I've met with people of APAC, 
I've seen APAC delegations that have come to Israel. You mentioned before about do the members of Congress know they have brought bipartisan missions here to try to educate them about all of the issues. And there's been real discussion and real debate. And I, I, I firmly believe that it does a real injustice to a really wonderful, uh, well-meaning, as I said before, very broad uh, organization uh, to, to smack them in this way as President Obama has. I think it's wonderful. This is an organization that's trying to work hard to strengthen the Israel-American alliance, to make sure that it's bipartisan in nature. I think that's very important. And uh, my experiences have been very different than what Obama describes uh, in that chapter. There are those who argue that Biden has been a longtime friend of Israel and that he will be better for Israel than Obama. Do you think that's possible? Uh, I've met Joe Biden. I've sat with Joe Biden. Uh, I, I do not believe that like you were asking before about, you know, not knowing about the League of the, the League of Nations and the mandates. And then he's not coming from that place of revisionist history. He's not. He's going to have to deal with a lot of different forces within the Democratic Party. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, but even in whatever he does in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's, it's not coming from what I saw in that chapter uh, written by Obama. That I can tell you. Uh, I do not think, again, depending on how much control he has, that we will see uh, some of the difficulties that we had uh, in, the, in the Obama administration. And I also believe, regardless of who, what happens in the elections coming up, even if it is Netanyahu, uh, I do believe that there will be a, a, a much better personal relationship than there was between Obama and the Israeli prime minister. All right. To end, I just want to sort of like a summary statement for, from you, even if it repeats some of the things you've said before. Explain to our audience as we bring this discussion to a close why you and I both feel it's really important to speak out against, and this isn't against Obama, Obama, but it's against Obama's portrayal of Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What do you want JBS viewers to take away from your words? I have one request from everyone. Remove all the outside noise. This is not about the Trump and Biden election. This is not about a Trump and Clinton election. This is not about American politics. It's not about Republican or Democrat, as I said before. It's not about conservative or liberal reform. After you've done that and removed all the outside noise, the article is called Obama's Revisionist Promised Land. Obama's Revisionist Promised Land. You can find it on JNS.org. Read it. Read it with an open mind. See the points that I make. Share it. Read it to your children. Read it to your grandchildren. Talk to your colleagues at work about it. Talk to people in your neighborhoods about it because we need to generate discussion about this so that more people recognize that a former president of the United States who I have no former history with of any kind, I do not engage in anything about the internal American politics, but has written words that are in print that will be read by millions of people that are slanted in an anti-Israel manner with outright falsehoods and misleading statements. And there's no one, no one 
who should be accepting of that. No one, whether they're Jewish, not Jewish, whatever their background, can be accepting of that. And I ask for your help to get the word out. Because the more people that hear about it, the more people that read it, the more people are knowledgeable, and those are one less person each time that will buy into those falsehoods and be guided by a former president of the United States who's so popular and so well-liked and be guided to then be anti-Israel because of what you read. Read it, learn the true history, and please be an advocate, no matter where you are politically, but be an advocate against these falsehoods and be an advocate that people should know the truth about Israel's history and their opinions should be formulated based on fact and not based on fiction. That was wonderfully wonderful. This whole discussion for me has been wonderful. Um, I've missed seeing you. So I'm thrilled that we get a chance right now to do a L'chaim together. We'll, I will stay more in touch with you and I hope you'll let me call you whenever I need somebody to give me some analysis about what you feel is going on in Israel or between Israel and America, but you have made an invaluable contribution to the Jewish people as well as the state of Israel, to the Jewish people, Dove, through all the work you've done, through all the service you've given, and, then, and now through this wonderful article you've written, which is very, very important, you know, in all you do, and we will stay in touch, my friend. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm looking forward to hearing from you, and I'm here to discuss and talk uh, whenever you would like to do so. Thank you, Dove. Dove Lippman, former Knesset member and an American-Israeli activist engaged in helping to improve Israeli society by integrating the ultra-Orthodox into mainstream Israeli life, and who is eloquent in defending the state of Israel from those who would distort the truth of Israeli history. And I'm most grateful to Dove for his many insights. Again, you may find many wonderful chapters in Mr. Obama's book, but his chapter on Israel is deeply flawed in many, many ways. It's even outrageous to some extent and misleading. And one has a right to ask, if Mr. Obama is so profoundly wrong in his description of Israeli history, is he similarly wrong about other issues he addresses in his book? In any case, I've been deeply troubled by the impact Mr. Obama's book may have on people who simply don't know the history of Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and will come away thinking they've learned the truth from a book written by a former president of the United States, whom they greatly admire. It's a danger. As always, I invite you to be in touch with me with any thoughts you may have about the ideas expressed on this edition of L'Chaim. Please email me at rabbigolub at jbstv.org. Or you can write me at post office box 360, Stanford, Connecticut, 06904. And remember, you can now listen to this edition of L'Chaim or past L'Chaim programs online through the L'Chaim podcast. My thanks this week to Millie and Larry Magid for their help with this edition of L'Chaim. And so until the next time, I'm Mark Golub. L'Chaim, my friends, to life.
Mechaim is a presentation of Jewish education in media. We would be pleased to send a complimentary DVD of this program to anyone who wishes to support JBS with a tax-deductible gift of $36, double chai, or more. Simply visit the JBS website at jbstv.org and click on the Donate button to make a donation by PayPal or your credit card. And please indicate the program for which you would like a DVD. Or you can send your tax-deductible check to JBS, Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. Or you can call the JBS Pledge Line at 833-MY-JBS-TV. That's 833-695-2788. And again, please remember to indicate which program you would like to receive with our compliments. We thank you for your kind support.